0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. The thought of gathering with thousands of people at a music festival right now is pretty unnerving, but it's something that musicians and fans have done every year for almost 85 years in Galax, Virginia. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, the old-time fiddler's convention. Later in the show, the sounds and styles of the banjo take us through its curious history. But first, young people are learning to play old-time and bluegrass tunes more than ever before. John Lohman is director of the Virginia Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities, He talks about this next generation of musicians and ways to support professional players in this difficult time. Hey, John, thanks for talking with me. I know you've got a lot going on right now.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: You were featured in a relatively new documentary called Fiddlin', and it's about the Galax, old-time fiddlers convention in Galax, Virginia, what makes it so special well
1: i should just say to your listeners uh, you know a lot of folks who are not familiar with these they hear they hear the term fiddlers convention and i think they get this vision in their mind of you know maybe a hyatt regency somewhere where there's tables and fiddles out or something like this think of it as kind of like he- part festival part contest part campground for a week part family reunion it's almost like a little town gets created for a week and folks spend the week there sleeping in RVs and tents and playing music 24 hours a day. And then there's contests and every type of instrument and bluegrass and old time music. It's just an amazing event. Um, And the Galax, which is a small little town in Grayson County, Virginia, right on the North Carolina line in the Blue Ridge Mountains, is just about the oldest and the largest Fiddler's Convention in the country, and they're celebrating, uh, hopefully, their 85th this summer.
0: Do you think the summer convention will still be on? When is
1: it? It's in. It's always in the first week of August, so we hope it will. I have to say, under this time of social distancing, it's hard to find an event that is uh, less about social distancing than a Fiddler's Convention, because it's all about people coming together.
0: Let's listen together to a clip from the documentary Fiddlin'. This features Karen Carr. She's an upright bass player who talks about how playing music lifted her out of dark times.
2: Being manic, depressive, or bipolar, the highs are fun, but they leave behind a debris field of debt and heartache that that same people cannot imagine. And when you come off the highs, the depression is so deep that that I have actually thanked God for not having to take this breath that I just took. I can go on to the next breath, you know. And when I started messing with that daggone guitar, pretty much healed me, I mean, from dozens of pills a day to nothing. Being able to appear reasonably sane out in public, that's a pretty big deal.
1: That's a beautiful story, actually. I know Karen quite well. She plays bass in the Wonderful old-time string band called the Crooked Road Ramblers, and uh, you know that's you hear that story a lot. You know, it's uh, music is is uh, is a healing force. You know, and this is a community that has um, and a region that has used music for this purpose for centuries, for generations. I and mean, this is this is uh, you know that part of Virginia, that part of the country. I mean, really, was America's first frontier. You know, and these were these were hard times for folks. And and, uh, a city like Galax has experienced uh, a lot of hard times and and continues to. It was a it was a major center for uh, furniture factories that has experienced um, a a, a, almost collapse, you could say. And music is what keeps them going. And and, and for a lot of them, it's it's what they look forward to all day. You know, is that time when they can pick up the banjo or the fiddle or whatever with family and friends. So that story is beautiful, and it 's not altogether unique.
0: It amazes me how the documentary shows how many young people are performing at top levels there's so many of them they seem to love it
1: oh so it's, it's an amazing thing to see you know I remember when I started the big narrative out there was that uh, everybody was so afraid that these uh, types of music uh bluegrass, old time traditional music was going to die out that the kids aren't into it. Um, And I could tell you, I'm really happy to report that nothing could be farther from the truth. And the kids have just gotten better and better and better over the years. It's astonishing. Um, And a lot of the old timers will tell you that that they've never seen anything like it, like they, they see now. It's just a culture down there where multiple generations down there enjoy spending time with one another, and the musicians are very generous with their time, with the young people. They always are. They're always happy when a kid says, hey, how do you play that lick? You know, how do I, how do, I do that thing that you just did? Um, so it's it's really a beautiful thing.
3: Hi, Kitty. How are you, how are you doing? How are you, Kitty? Who are you on the flight? Played Sally
4: Ann
5: already? No, little Sally Ann.
0: play another clip from Fiddlin'. This is a young boy, an incredible guitar player named Presley Barker. Wayne Henderson is famous for his guitars and he made Presley his very own guitar. And this is Presley's mom talking about how much he appreciates it.
4: I went in to check on Presley before I went to bed and uh, in his bedroom he was asleep on one pillow and on the other pillow was the Henderson guitar covered up with cover. He said that um, it didn't deserve to be on the floor, he just wants to keep it with him at all times. So you can say he's really attached to the guitar.
0: And Presley's just one of so many kids at the Fiddlers convention who started playing very young. Here's some others.
4: I was seven years old when I started playing. I was four. I'm 11 years old and uh, I've been playing for about eight years since I was
3: three and a half. I didn't have a phone in my hand. But uh, I always had an instrument in my hand, and I feel like that
4: has helped me a lot along the way.
0: Imagine people, that generation, who can be lured away from phones. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm sure you're speaking to uh, parents uh, all over the country here who wish they could get an instrument in their kids' hands instead of a, a screen. I think we're waging a, a separate war in the country right now versus screens with our children with all this uh, free time. But a really interesting thing that, that that I've found is that the kids are actually, they're actually, a lot of them are really utilizing technology. Kids are, you know, watching uh, musicians that they want to learn from on YouTube. A lot of them are taking lessons on YouTube or Skype or these other ways. They're recording music and they're practicing and they're, and they're sharing, you know, with social media so that the technology in these cases is not so much uh, moving them away from the music, but in a lot of cases is bringing them even more to the music.
0: Yeah, and it's great to hear so many young girls are playing the music.
1: You know, it's it's uh, you see Ivy Phillips and you see Kitty Amaral and you see Isla Wildman. You see these young girls in the film. And that's been something that's been wonderful to see is just, uh, you know, really an increase of girls and women playing the music because, um, you know, bluegrass and old-time can be uh, often a a genre like many genres that are really uh, musical genres that tend to be dominated by men. In fact, Dory Freeman, who's an incredible songwriter from Virginia, has a a quote in the film where she talks about that, you know, if you look at at most festivals out there, you know, bluegrass festivals or Americana festivals, you know, they always have the poster where they have the, the big name on the top and then they go through and you go to the bottom of the page with all the names. She says you can often count on one hand the number of females on those lists. And that's really changed. I mean, girls are winning this thing. In fact, last year at the Fiddler's Convention, Isla Wildman, who I'm proud to say was an apprentice twice in our program, uh one best all-around performer uh at the age of I believe I believe she was 15 when she did that um so the girls are taking over and uh that's good to see
0: it is so fun and reassuring to see this young generation so skilled and embracing the old-time music but these days because of the coronavirus I really worry about the professional musicians the older ones who've lost all their work all their gigs
1: Oh, well, it's it's devastating uh, to professional musicians, to uh, those organizations that present them, to the entire industry right now. And I, I know so many musicians, of course, uh, that we work with. Um, and, you know, within days, you know, their, their entire season was decimated. Uh, festivals being canceled, theaters being canceled. I mean, this is all about people coming out and being together for live performances. Um, so this has been really rough. What a lot of them are doing right now, and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to see, uh, so many musicians now are turning to uh, social media and streaming services. Uh, every night there are many uh, concerts that you could watch folks just from their living room uh, performing, and you can watch and you can donate to the musicians. Um, a lot of them are are giving lessons. What we're doing at the Folklife Program right now, as quickly as we can, is we are reaching out to as many musicians of all types um, in Virginia uh, to, to get set up uh, to teach online and to form right there on our website, virginiafolklife.org, uh, where you can see all these different folks that you could learn music from and how to connect with them to help out, really will help out these musicians who have no source of income right now. So we're going to provide a directory. We're going to f- showcase different artists. Uh, but also, what better time, you know, than now while we're all shut in the house to, to learn that instrument you always wanted to learn? And it's a form of connection, as you know. So, so that's what we're up to. And I encourage people uh, to, to check us out and, and to, uh, to learn an instrument.
0: John, that's terrific. Give me that link one more time.
1: It's virginiafolklife.org.
0: So this documentary called Fiddlin, just just out mm-hmm. since last fall, how can people watch it?
1: Well, it's available for streaming on uh, Amazon Prime, for those who have that, or Apple TV. You can also order a DVD from the film's website, which is www.fiddlinmovie.com. The film was uh, produced and directed by two sisters from Carroll County, which is right uh, adjacent to Galax. Uh, they grew up there and uh, they're not musicians themselves, but like anyone there, they grew up going to the Fiddlers conventions and um, it's actually their first film and it's a it's a beautiful film.
0: Well, John Loman, thank you so much for talking with me and with good reason and I hope you and your family stay safe.
1: Oh you too, Sarah, and to everyone out there as well.
0: John Lohman is the Virginia State Folklorist and Director of the Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities. The banjo is an instrument that often gets connected with the backwoods of the American South. But its roots are in Western Africa. and its history includes upper-class women picking classical music on it. My next two guests are going to talk about the banjo's storied past. Professor Steve Rockenbach from Virginia State University and Greg Kimball from the Library of Virginia say banjo music, like the instrument itself, has really transformed over time and they play a few tunes to make their point. The famous banjo player, Bella Fleck, said the banjo is associated with white, southern stereotypes, and yet the instrument came from Africa. Tell me about the very earliest life of the banjo here, Greg.
3: Well, obviously we know that it came from Africa, the basic design idea of the instrument, basically a skin head over a drum or a... Uh, in the case of an African banjo, a hollowed-up piece of wood.
0: Did enslaved people bring it from Africa, Uh, or did they just remember it and
3: recreate it here? They remembered it and recreated it. I don't think there's much chance that anybody actually brought an instrument with them. They brought the cultural knowledge of the instrument.
0: Stephen, do we even know what those earliest banjos looked like?
6: Those early examples would have been made from gourds, various type of animal skins, and uh, constructed of wood. And so we don't have a lot of evidence of the actual instruments, uh, but there is a painting that includes one. And that's a New World painting,
3: and it's sometimes the common name of it is the Old Plantation. And it's from South Carolina, but it's really interesting painting because not only does it show the banjo with its gourd body as it emerged in the New World, but it shows people dancing a gentleman with a stick who's doing a dance. So it's a dance. It's a social event. That's the context of the banjo.
0: What period was that painting?
3: About 1760s, 1770s. That's the best guess. There's no exact date.
0: What's your best guess? What are, what are the, What's the best guess of people, what they must have sounded like? Can you sort of illustrate it on your own instrument?
6: Yes, I have a reproduction of what was known as the minstrel, style banjo of the 1830s and 40s which would have been the sort of industrial version of those earlier banjos so what it has in similar is that it's fretless and my instrument has nylon what they call nylon gut strings to s- sort of sound like the cat gut strings that would have been used and then a synthetic skin head so what you're going to hear is a lower sound and one that has a lot of slides and uh, the tone is definitely deeper and, and richer.
0: So fairly early on, the banjo was mostly being heard where? It was being heard on plantations in the South?
6: Predominantly, and that's where we see some of the first transition or borrowing um, of the music and the instrument.
0: When did minstrel shows begin? And these are white performers imitating Black performers?
6: Yes, principally in the 1820s and 1830s. It is white performers playing the banjo, the bones, tambourine, fiddle, and other instruments uh, associated with plantation life and making fun of Black Southerners. So it's interesting that even though we know that the minstrel shows were racist parody, it was a very popular style of music. So you could hear a lot of different songs in that style. One example is a song, Darling Nelly Gray, written shortly before the Civil War by Benjamin Hanby, who was a white minister. He wrote it as an abolitionist song. So the song itself is talking about a young man who goes to see his sweetheart, who's enslaved, to realize that she's been sold from Kentucky down the Mississippi River to where he'll never see her again. Played on the minstrel banjo, this is Darling Nellie Gray. my darling anymore I'm sitting by the river and weeping all the day you're gone from the old Kentucky shore Ah, that's moving. It is, and I think that understanding that the banjo was used for dance music, sad ballads like that one, as well as just popular music uh, that people might hear in a tavern. So there's this minstrel movement that really crystallizes nationally
3: in the 40s and 50s. This music's not just popular in one region. It's a national music. It's really the first national musical theater that America invents that isn't borrowed from Europe. So in New York City and Boston and London and all of these places, people are listening to this music. And the banjo evolves as well. And in the 1840s, you have the first manufacturing in Baltimore of the banjo as we really probably understand it today.
0: Was it played by the North and the South soldiers during the Civil War?
3: Absolutely. In fact, there are wonderful photographs of minstrel bands in uniform playing uh, for their units.
0: Either North or South.
3: North or South. You know, that's the the irony of Dixie, of course, is that it was apparently Lincoln's favorite song. Uh, This was a national culture uh, minstrelsy.
0: You guys don't want to launch into something from the Civil War, do you?
6: And that's Battle Cry of Freedom, which was a song that was written in the North, but there were also Southern lyrics to it as well. And I imagine you would have heard that played on the banjo quite a bit. And
3: another thing that happens that's really revolutionary is that the banjo doesn't just remain a minstrel instrument, but it starts to go out into all these new musics that our Americans are inventing. So jazz, you have the tenor banjo that's employed in that. You have ragtime music, you have all of these other forms, and the banjo basically adapts. So all kinds of people are playing the instrument. You have white ladies playing the instrument in parlors, and you have people playing minstrel style, and you have people playing classical banjo. Uh, Mark Twain himself has this wonderful quote: "Give me the banjo, you know. Forget your European art music. You know, it becomes the American instrument." One of the things that I think people find a little peculiar about the banjo and the way we think about it, because we hear it being played in like bluegrass music, is that um, there was a classical banjo movement. Around when? This is happening roughly in the 1890s uh, into the early 20th century is when we start to see that happen. And you see that feeding back into the folk music. We think of folk music here in the, among the people, and here's classical music up here, but they feed on each other. So a good example of this, how classical banjo influences folk music, the reverse of what we might think, is Marion Underwood. He's the banjo player for uh, Taylor's Kentucky Boys, and he plays a wonderful piece called Cold Creek March. This is recorded in 1927 in Richmond, Indiana, at the Jeanette Studios. sound. What is that? Well, he's hitting the head of the, of the banjo like this uh, to, to make a rhythmical pulse out of it. The other thing I love about this piece, too, is he's doing these wonderful little quick arpeggio rolls with his fingers uh, across the strings. But I really, and I think Stephen would agree with me, this really speaks to the influence of, of classical
6: banjo. It is, and it takes uh, a lot of skill And so this is an instrument that sometimes might be seen as sort of a, you know, backwoods instrument, as not refined, and he's using an amazing level of technique to get a number of different sounds out of one instrument. So as Greg said, there are a lot of different styles uh, and tunings to play the banjo in. So when you start to have recorded music, you hear styles and you pick them up, but there's not really any dominant one, and the same song can be played using a couple different styles. So, claw hammer, which is using usually the index or the middle finger and the thumb in a sweeping down motion where the thumb catches the fifth string like this. And then the three-fingered style.
0: When did we start to see bluegrass?
6: You start to see bluegrass in the 1940s and 1950s, and it's really more of a style of playing that mixes some of the old-time instruments, songs, and styles with a bit of improvisation from jazz uh, and influence from different Western swing. It starts to take on a different sound. You've got Earl Scruggs, who popularized what we call the three-finger Scruggs-style picking. Now, people had been playing with two or three fingers, but Scruggs added some different techniques to it. I bet you know what this one is. (laughs)
0: Beverly Hillbillies.
6: Yes, exactly. And so that theme song um, was one of many songs that Scruggs played in that style. And so bluegrass then changes as other players use metal picks on their fingers and a plastic thumb pick and then use the banjo in ways that it hadn't been played before, playing hot licks, faster riffs, um, soloing, and playing further down the neck, And so it's the same instrument in many ways as the one that we know from the 19th century. But in other ways, it sounds completely different, and it's played completely differently.
0: So where are we now with the banjo? Is it played by folks doing old-time music but not so popular?
6: I see it all over the popular culture. Don't you, Stephen? Yes, and I think that's what has really interested me as a banjo player and someone who loves the instrument. It continues to transform. And it's become very popular, not just in old time or bluegrass or country. You see it in pop music. It's used in rock. And especially recently, different versions of the instrument, hybrids, uh, like a banjo body with the neck of a guitar, often called a gitjo or a banjitar, that has been played by a number of popular musicians and performers, including Taylor Swift. I think the other thing that is really important that's going on right now is the revival
3: of interest in some of these older banjo styles among African Americans. You have uh, the North Carolina Chocolate Drops, uh, who have disbanded, but were really an important band in raising the perspective uh, of the banjo and how important, it, how fundamental African American music is to country music, which is not something that we imagine. And of course, Rihanna Giddens has gone on to a solo career. Uh, And there's quite a number of young African-American performers who are performing on the banjo
6: again. And also writing songs for the banjo. And so in some ways, you have a new folk tradition emerging.
0: Well, Stephen and Greg, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason.
6: Thank you. It was really, really a lot of fun.
0: Do you have a song you could take us out on?
6: Yes, I think we can do Worried Man Blues, which is a a traditional song. And I'm going to do the three-fingered style and Greg will do Clawhammer.
0: Stephen Rockenbach is Professor of History and Philosophy at Virginia State University. Greg Kimball is Director of Public Services and Outreach at the Library of Virginia. and listeners, we want to hear from you. What are you doing to cope with the COVID-19 changes? What's helping you? Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us by Monday morning so we can share. You can find our email address on the website or email it to WGR at virginiahumanities.org Amen,
7: Three sons, the youngest was called Sinner, he's gone to the woods hunting, just like a Joe Bull hunter. As Welcome back to With
0: Good Up Reason For from Virginia green, Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. Most of us think of mountain music as a band of musicians with hot fiddle or banjo solos, but there is a far earlier genre of unaccompanied ballad singing that still persists today. Our next guest is an expert in the roots of traditional American music. Cece Conway is a professor of English at Appalachian State University and the author of African Banjo Echoes in Appalachia. Her love of mountain music goes a long way
7: back. As you are the Joe Hunter, he blowed his horn northeast, west, and south. Blow your horn, sinner. The wild bird heard him into his den just like a joe
0: hunter. Cece, do you remember how old you were when you heard somebody singing like one of these ballad singers and thought, I love it?
2: Really, the first song I learned the words to was not a ballad, but the blues with Lead Belly singing Irene Goodnight," And he also grew up in... Northeast Texas, not far from where I spent summers, and then I came to North Carolina to college and more or less never left except a visit. In college, I started going to fiddlers' conventions. In the summer, there's one every weekend still, from the 60s until now.
0: Let's dive right in, playing
2: Awake, Awake,
0: sung by one of your current favorite Appalachian ballad singers, Rick Ward.
2: Yes. The young man wants his sweetheart to ask his father to let him marry her, and she says, I can't do it. He's sleeping with a knife. He'll kill you.
7: Go, love, go, and ask your father. If this night, you can be my bride. If he says no, then return and tell me be the last time ever bother thee I can't go and ask my father for he's on his bed of rest and by his side there lies a weapon to kill the one
0: I love how raw his voice is, and he just belts it out.
2: Yes, he's so into the story, because ballads are story songs rather than just lyric, emotional, expressive songs. So the young man finally says, Well, I'll just go away if they won't let me marry you to the river and never come back and bother you again. And she says, No, no stay with me a while, and then I'll run away with you.
0: And what happens in the end?
2: She does. And this was something new in this country because in the old world, the parents, they there was no place for people to go, so they were more obedient to their parents. But here, they could go away and make a new life for themselves. So many of these old
0: ballads are very gory. Why is that?
2: Because they're about, really, the fears and the values of the people who say them. So when the husband comes home and finds his lady in bed with Maddie Groves, he cuts off her head and kicks it against the wall. But then he lures it gently into the grave.
0: So what kind of emotions and ways of being are those that are being touted in these ballads?
2: Well, on the one hand... Adultery can cause a problem. (laughs) Another interpretation of the song is, when you hear the horn blow, get up and go.
0: (laughs) So did these ballads that came over from England and Scotland and Ireland, did the lyrics and form of the ballads change after a while in the Appalachian Mountains?
2: The form didn't change so much except to grow shorter and more intense and dramatic. Had they been long, Oh, yes, they were sometimes 64 verses long, and now maybe they're a dozen verses long or eight. And the subjects, would the subjects change? A lot of the subjects remain, romance, jealousy. They're called by the people old love songs.
0: How early did these singers arrive in America?
2: They probably came as early as Jamestown in the 1600s, perhaps more from Scotland than from England. And there was also Irish influence, although the history of that is less clear.
0: Were they sinking and settling up and down the colonies, or did they immediately head for the hills and go to Appalachia?
2: A lot of them were moving away from the English who had been colonizing them and mistreating them, and also a lot of the Scots as well, came in during the 1600s and by the 1700s, and then did begin to go south down the Great Wagon Road through Virginia often and then into the Appalachian settlements. They really have persisted in the two main communities that continue to sing ballads today. Beach Mountain was the first Appalachian settlement, what's now North Carolina—
0: So Rick Ward, who sang Awake, Awake for us just now, he comes from a long tradition of ballad singers in his family.
2: He's kin to the first two families that settled on Beach Mountain, first the Hicks and then the Wards. And the ancestor of the Hicks probably came in through Jamestown, worked on a tobacco farm at the head of the Rappahannock River. He was an indentured servant. He worked off his time and bought land, and then eventually the family began to trickle southward. When the American Revolution came, he didn't want to fight the Tories, and he didn't want to fight the Patriots. So he skedaddled into Stokes County and then finally across the Blue Ridge into Beach Mountain.
0: To give examples of a couple more of these ballads, let's turn to the musician and singer James Leva.
2: Uh, he's a wonderful fiddle and banjo player and an incredible singer and songwriter. He lives on 88 Acres and goes hunting in Virginia near Lexington and eats a lot of venison <laughs> and cooks well. Yeah. I believe he's once been described as that New Jersey boy who moved to the mountains and went native. <laughs> well, James sings the house carpenter. A lover comes to the lady and uh, says he could have married the king's daughter, but he's come back to her instead. She says, you should have perhaps married her because I married a a nice young carpenter and he's a fine fellow. Let's hear that.
8: Well met, well met, my old true love. Well met, once more cried he. For I've just returned from the salt, salt sea. And it's all for the sake of thee. Now I could have married a king's daughter, dear. I'm sure she'd have married me. But I've forsaken all her gold and it's all for the love of thee if you could have married a king's daughter dear you had better have married she for i'm lately wed to a house carpenter and a fine young man is he if you'll forsake your house, carpenter, and come along with me, I'll take you where the grass grows I heard that
0: there was a period where a lot of experts thought that these British Isle ballads had sort of died out, and then suddenly people realized, no, 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 this... Tradition is alive and well in America's Appalachian Mountains.
2: Yes, and that began as early as when Cecil Sharp came in the early 1900s and found ballads that had died out in England here and was thrilled and collected a large number of them, went all through the mountains, but missed Beach Mountain. He went near what where is Ma- Madison is.
0: And was this a time where the record existed, and were these
2: played for a wider audience? These couldn't be recorded in the field at this time. He took down the music, and his traveling companion, a lady, took down the words for him.
0: Who was the first to come across these and actually record them?
2: Um, Alan Lomax and his father, John, were some of the early people who recorded these, and... um, he recorded Texas Gladden, for example, who sings The Three Babes, which is a song that James also loves.
0: Oh, Texas Gladden is a woman.
2: Yes. She was to people who were interested in these ballads during the years that uh, Lomax was collecting, say.
0: Let's play her singing, Last night there were four Marys, Today there will be only three.
4: Oh, brave.
2: Well, she talks about how she took care of the queen and she bathed her feet and now the queen has condemned her to have her head cut off. Why? The baby has disappeared that she had and was it the king's? And is that why she's going to be beheaded? But it's so understated. That's part of the beauty of these songs. It doesn't go into the details of the execution. It just has that amazing chorus.
0: When did Texas Gladden live?
2: Well, she grew up in Saltville, Virginia, early in the 1900s.
0: Did many mountain women also sing these ballads?
2: Yes, a lot of women did sing them. It seems that women became more the singers in this country And why that happened is not so clear, but I've begun to think that maybe once the fiddle arrived and became popular, the men took an interest in that and began taking up the fiddle and leaving the ballads to the women who could be holding their babies or string beans and singing at the same time. Rick Ward um, sings The Will Hunter, which is... An incredible song, partly because some of the oldest versions in the Folger Library have the hunter fighting a dragon, whereas in in this song, it's um, a boar, the wild boar in the woods that kills 10,000 men, and yet the hunter still survives. And he's a jovial hunter, which is perhaps a jovial hunter, Yet there's another surprise in the song because there's a witch wife. uh, The Jobel Hunter splits her head in two, but there's also humor in it because she says, you know, what are you doing? You've killed my pig. And she's mad about that, and that's when he turns on her.
7: Abe and Bailey had three sons. The youngest was called sinner He's gone to the green woods hunting, just like a joble hunter. As he walked up the green briar ridge, blow your horn, sinner. There he met a gay lady, just like a bull hunter. She says there is wild boar in these woods. Blow your horn, sinner. For he has killed my lord and forty men as you are the jobal hunter he says oh how am i to know blow your horn sinner! blow your horn northeast west and south as you are the jobal hunter he blowed his horn northeast west and south Blow your horn the heard him into his den just like a Jobel hunter and as they the White oak Mountain
0: blow your where horn, are we now sinner. with this form of singing will it last can it live
2: it's hard to know but there's a lot of excitement with it now for example there's a duo called Anna and Elizabeth Anna is living in New York now and Elizabeth grew up in Virginia. She was singing from a young age, and there were um, traditional singers in her neighborhood who were influential on her and other people. And actually, her um, mother's brother is a very good traditional singer in North Carolina.
0: Let's play something by Anna and Elizabeth now.
2: I do just think it's valuable to think about how relevant a lot of the hard themes in the ballads are today for us and how they're not sentimental, they're real. They're about the real challenges that people have, whether it's the young man's fear that he doesn't get to marry his sweetheart or it's her fear of leaving her family but her willingness to follow her beloved at possibly great expense and danger. We all know what it's like to be in love with somebody and to wonder how that will work out or to face challenges about how it has worked out. Calling them the old love songs is the perfect name, even though most of them do not necessarily end happily. Why do you love these ballads? Mm, I love the stories. I love the lack of sentimentality, but the deep feelings that are suggested by them.
0: Are there any popular music performers that you can think of who've been influenced by this very ancient ballad style?
2: Well, there's some sort of aging ones. Uh, Joan Baez, in the 60s sang many beautiful ballads, Silver Dagger the Copper Kettle, and others. Her singing style wasn't so traditional, and yet there's something about her personal authenticity that I think survives well.
4: Don't sing love songs You'll wake my mother She's sleeping here Side and in her right hand, silver dagger. She says that I.
2: Back in the beginning, when a bunch of us were first getting into this, this music and being around it, we were drawn to it and to the people who sang it and who played the music. And even though politically we may have had different ideas, there was something still very staunch and deep about all of the singers we wanted to become close to.
0: You don't worry about us losing this style forever.
2: I do worry about that, and every black banjo player I know has died. However, miraculously, after the banjo players were dead, along came Rhiannon Giddens and Dom and Justin the fiddle player, and they became the first young black fiddle band in 80 years. And they learned the tradition enough that there is traditionalism there. And they were able to pass it on to somebody like Hubby Jenkins, who's another chocolate drop now. So um, there's hope. There's always hope. And that is the group that calls itself the Carolina Chocolate Drops. That's exactly right. And there was also a group born in the early 1900s called the Tennessee Chocolate Drops.
0: Cece Conway, thank you for sharing this about the ballads
2: with us on With Good Reason. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun.
5: Cornbread and butter beans and you across the table Eating them beans and making love as long as I am able Hoeing corn and cotton too and when the day is over Ride the mule and cut the and love I'm going to Louisiana. The bacoon dog and a big fat hog and Mary uh Sing song, ding dong, I'll take a trip to China. Cornbread and butter beans, then back to North Carolina.
0: Cece Conway is a professor of English at Appalachian State University and the author of African Banjo Echoes in Appalachian. She's also a former fellow at Virginia Humanities. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Allison Byrne, Lauren Parker, and Jamal Milner. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.
5: I'm a terrible and cornbread and butter beans, and you cross the table. Eating and beans and making love as long as I am able. Howing corn and cotton too, and when the day is over, ride the mule and cut the fool and look. i